Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. This week, we bring a guest to talk about their experiences navigating creative and innovative areas of the legal profession. This week, we are extremely excited to be introducing Jennifer Friedman. She has a BA Honours from the University of Toronto, and she obtained her JD from Western University. In 2006, Jennifer was hired as the first ever general counsel for the Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And in 2008, she released the inaugural edition of the book, Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. And in 2016, she opened her own practice devoted exclusively to animal law. She's handled hundreds of animal cases before courts and tribunals across Canada for the past 17 years. And so we're extremely excited to be getting to know a little bit more about her and about animal law in Canada. So thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So Jennifer, I'll I'll start by asking the first question. In the first few years of your practice, you worked in administrative law and corporate litigation, if I'm not mistaken. So what steered you towards animal law? And in particular, I ask this question because it does seem like you were one of the early specialists in the field in Ontario. Well, just to back up a little bit, when I was at U of T, I had a real interest in law and in animals, and it was a question, how do I merge these two passions? So the law was simple. Oh, I wouldn't say simple, but easier um, to figure that piece out. I entered law school still with that question of how to pursue this um, in terms of a career. And unfortunately, at the time, when I entered in 1999, there wasn't a single law school course on animal law fast forward to 2023 and virtually every school in north america has an animal law course which is excellent there wasn't a course there wasn't an instructor who was willing to supervise a paper and the result was i ended law school no further toward this plan for animal law And at that time, I didn't feel equipped to open my own practice being a new law grad. And I articled admin law, which was fabulous because in my articling year, which was 10 months at the time, I did about 90 hearings. And in terms of animal law, tribunal practice is a huge component. So that was a really great experience to prepare me for going into my own practice years later. And I then worked in corporate litigation, which was great. And I made some wonderful connections there, but it still wasn't really what I was passionate about. And it wasn't until 2006 when I saw the posting for counsel for the Ontario SPCA, which was almost like a mirage because I had been waiting for that for a long time. And I was fortunate to be hired into the role. And that's where the journey with animal law started. It's definitely a 
field that is more established now. I I recall even a couple of months ago, or no, maybe a couple of weeks ago, rather, I think the U of T hosted a conference for animal law. And it's interesting because when you're in your first year uh, at law school, you, you have a very, very uh, kind of tight restriction on what you're allowed to take. In fact, actually at the U of T, it's completely decided for you. Um, nevertheless, I think it's great because this conference and you know other related symposia allow 1L students to learn about these fields, even if they can't uh, directly enter them in their first year. I probably missed you there because I was speaking at that conference on Amazing. animals. So that's a really great initiative that uh, Animal Justice and the Brooks Institute and the University of Toronto do. I think it's the fourth year now, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a great conference for those people who are interested in this area of law. And I'd be interested to know, uh, Jennifer, do you do you know where your interest in animals came from? Is it just simply maybe having animals around you as you were younger or something else, maybe an, a deciding event? It was always about a love for being around non-human animals, whether they're companion animals or otherwise. And then it was more uh, something that resonated with me that how are non-human animals treated on a daily basis and who actually speaks for them and no one really was speaking for them. And when you were at the U of T for your undergrad and even at law school when you you know you couldn't take any formal classes per se uh, not to the degree perhaps that you know Sarah and I could now um, what kinds of courses and what kinds of areas do you think were adjacent or relevant to to animal law? To be candid, I don't think there were any, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I say that joking, but um, actually every mainstream area of practice intersects with animal law. The only difference is you're dealing with um, typically a four-legged um, instead of a two-legged client. And in that sense, being exposed to all of the other areas definitely helped me and I'm able to reflect on how that relates to non-human animals. But in terms of actual substantive help with this area, unfortunately, unless you actually take a animal law specific course, it'll be tricky to navigate after law school. Um, I was also curious to know, what's your take on animals still being considered, for the most part, property in the law? It's really an interesting question. And when I taught at Western just last week, that was the first day of class to consider animals as property. And from my perspective, it's really problematic. I think even for those who aren't animal advocates, they would recognize that non-human animals are distinct from a couch or a bicycle in the sense that they are alive. And to that end, they ought to be treated in a different manner. And again, even from people who, who don't necessarily advocate for non-human animals, 
I don't believe it's a contentious statement to say that there perhaps should be a special category subscribed to non-human animals um, to distinguish them from these other inanimate forms of property. Uh, sadly, under the law, they're still considered property. So it's really a question of what do you do in the legal framework to recognize this distinction? You know, Sarah and I are actually in the same property law class, and our professor often uses, and you know, I think kind of rightfully so given the kind of current paradigm, uh, when, whenever he talks about chattel property, uh, sometimes he will bring in this example of, you know, a pet dog or something like that. Um, and Or even thinking about the etymological root of the word chattel, right, and its connection to cattle. Um, I, I think it's interesting because very rightfully you say that um, animal law comes into contact with all sorts of different areas of law, but I think it is interesting with, with respect to property law, it's perhaps like over-inclusion <laughs> of, of animals. I like to give the example, and I think it um, resonates with people. If you consider a dog and you consider a plush toy that looks just like the dog that's obviously not alive, under the law, they're treated as the same. In some instances, if that it's a high-end plush toy and the dog was purchased from a shelter, under the law, if there was a dispute, the plush toy from a purely quantitative analysis would be regarded as more valuable. And that's really problematic. Jennifer, my next question has to do with, um, so you say that animal law, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's so broad in that it touches and, and, and touches upon different kinds of law. But then I think also animal law itself is such a broad discipline. And if I'm not mistaken, the way that uh, animal law is currently conceived, there are laws that might be more pertinent to dogs and cats and what we might consider as domestic pets. But then there's also laws that will apply to pigs and cows and then also other laws or, or legal conceptions that will apply to raccoons and squirrels and, you know, what we might consider as perhaps more pests or, you know, these kind of city city animals. Um what what is your experience working in such a broad discipline? Well, you have to recognize that it's almost like a tiered system where companion and domesticated animals seem to be at the top of this hierarchy. And then you go um, down this pyramid and who's at the bottom. Um, I don't share, and I, I don't think you necessarily meant that they're pests, but a lot of people believe that raccoons and skunks and squirrels are pests. From my perspective, they ought to be treated with um, care, and people need to regard them in a humane manner. And, I mean, I had several experiences under the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Act, which is a collateral statute, where when I was with the SPCA and I was prosecuting involving what some people would regard as pests, um, an incredulous response, which was, how would you expect us to 
make an order in relation to a raccoon or a skunk, um, they're not worthy of this type of attention or protection under the law to the extent that in some instances, members of the judiciary would visibly be chuckling at these cases because they consider them to be a complete and utter waste of time. But when we go back to who's at the bottom of this hierarchy, sadly, it's those who find themselves in animal agriculture, particularly in the factory farms where they're hidden. And now with this ag-gag law, the opportunity to be able to go into these facilities and be able to evaluate what's happening and the atrocious treatment that farmed animals are receiving is bordering on impossible now. And so looking into, again, just this idea of it being a broad discipline, to what, expe- to what extent did you specialize or do you recommend, recommend specializing in animal law? So let's say, do you think there's a difference in terms of focusing on animal welfare versus rights or looking into representing different regulatory bodies? Well, there's a real spectrum in terms of philosophies with animal rights on the one hand and animal welfare near the other end. And it's really a personal decision in terms of what you're prepared to handle and how your perspective aligns with the cases that you're receiving um, or the requests for legal services. Um, From my perspective, when you're in your own practice, you're able to select which cases that you're philosophically aligned with and that you're prepared to advocate. from my perspective, everybody's entitled to a defense and to a lawyer. And in some instances, I have to look at facts and say that I'm not the per- best person to handle this sort of case. And by that, the example that comes up quite commonly is in relation to allegations of animal cruelty. I definitely will not handle those cases and I refer them to someone who is equipped to fearlessly advocate for those individuals, which is what they're entitled to. And as you know, as law students, that's your obligation to ensure that members of the public who seek out your guidance, if you can't provide it for them, that you direct them to someone else. So in that instance, while I don't agree with what they've done, I mean, those are allegations at the time, I'm just not comfortable handling those sorts of cases and I refer them to someone who is. So generally in terms of um, focusing, while on the one hand, animal law is a very broad practice. I think it's tricky to say, well, I'm only going to handle these sorts of animal law cases and not others. Certainly at this point in time, maybe from t- 10 years from now, there may be uh, an opportunity to specialize in a specific aspect of animal law. 
And would you say that for folks who are in, um, like Sarah and my uh, shoes, you know, maybe we're going to graduate in, you know, two or three or four years, something like that. Would you say that the, the most, you know, if, if we really wanted to dedicate ourselves to animal law, is the typical route now to start our own practice or to go into like public, the public sector? Or would you say that, uh, you know, kind of more the sky's the limit, there's, there's other options as well? I think it's tricky and I've often had new lawyers reach out to me and ask for guidance on how to navigate this practice. But remember, as lawyers, we need to be able to advance a client's interests in a competent manner. And I think that's really tricky just coming out of law school. And even if you've had one or two animal law courses, um, it's really a challenge. So to that end, I think it's best to seek out opportunities with perhaps existing animal law lawyers or agencies that are advocacy related in regards to animals. Uh, animal justice is one example. There's Humane Society International, there's World Animal Protection. There are a whole host of organizations, um, even the various humane societies and SPCAs, depending on the jurisdiction in which you reside, to be able to give you a better sense of um, navigating these issues. And the other piece that I find very valuable and certainly from my experience, uh, work to my benefit uh, was articling in administrative law because many of the cases that I handle, I appear before various adjudicative tribunals. And so when I was prosecuting, it was a different role, um, but you still have the sense and the comfort level of appearing before those bodies and understanding how the proceedings unfold. I think that's great advice, especially given um, the state of animal law currently and the fact that maybe there's a limited number of professionals or organizations that students can get involved with early on. Um, there is that option to go into another area of law kind of in the meantime, that's actually going to properly prepare you for animal law um, if it just so happens that unfortunately you can't get in directly into a firm for example um, that has that area of practice yes and there are a lot of firms now i understand that don't have a specialty in that area but will handle these sorts of files so that's another opportunity as a new graduate when one is considering the law firm route is to inquire, do you handle these sorts of cases? Or if you don't, would you consider because this is a passion of mine? Definitely. And would you say maybe also taking it on as um, more of a pro bono kind of side? I know that a lot of firms now are really focusing on pro bono hours and trying to kind of um, make that available to the partners in their firm and do you think that would be also a kind of good avenue to potentially explore that 
Yes, absolutely. Many of these cases can be cost prohibitive mm -hmm. and individuals can afford to pursue them. And offering pro bono services is definitely a way to give back to the community, but also to have practical experience in this area. And Jennifer, what's really interesting, I, I, I like this um, conversation about the pro bono angle, mainly because I think sometimes students, you know, when they when they go to law school, they're thinking, OK, so I know all of these big kinds of areas of law and I'll, I'll go into one of those. And I'm also somewhat interested in, in animal protection or animal welfare or animal justice. But I don't really know how those areas can kind of come into contact or intersection with one another. So from your uh, professional experience, how often and, and in what ways does your work intersect with other areas of law? I was wondering if you could kind of expound upon that a little bit. Sure. Um, I can say that virtually every mainstream area of practice intersects with animal law. We've already talked about property on a regular basis, those areas intersect. Another big one is um, family law and navigating disputes amongst partners, um, spouses, even friends, where at the heart of their dispute, it's a non-human animal, typically a companion animal. So that's a common one. We've already talked about administrative law and that um, from my perspective, whether it's a dangerous dog tribunal and those make up a large portion of my practice appearing before those adjudicative tribunals and committees. Um, it's also in relation to say the Animal Care Review Board, which is the board that adjudicates matters previously between the SPCA and owners and custodians now since enforcement um, was moved from the SPCA to the Solicitor General, it's Animal Welfare Services. Also, I prosecuted for the Horse Racing Commission. So now the Racing Commission merged with the AGCO. So there's the Horse Racing Appeal Panel. So there are a huge number of tribunals, um, and so admin law definitely um, intersects environmental law for obvious reasons, intersects with it, and human rights when we're talking about animal sentience and questioning how that would unfold and and how animals and jurisdictions where they've been recognized as sentient, how does that affect their lives and the quality of life and comparing that to other regions where they're still considered purely property. So there are numerous um, areas of practice where there's a regular intersection and for those people who have an interest in animal law and an interest in another area of practice, again, I, I think it's tricky at this juncture to specialize in those areas, but perhaps focus on those. Do you happen to know the state of animal law in different jurisdictions? And if so, how would you compare it to Canada? 
Like, do you think that we're uh, making good progress, that we're kind of looking at it in a more modern way, or are we potentially um, behind some other countries? Sadly, Canada has some of the most antiquated law, animal protection laws, comparatively speaking. And my hope was in 2023, we'd be further ahead. Um, just to give an example with these ag-gag laws, that is really backward. And it's unfortunate that that's unfolded. Um, Canada doesn't recognize animals as sentient, whereas more than 40 countries around the world do. I think that reflects the need for a paradigm shift in Canada. I'm hopeful that as the area of practice is expanding, the protections for animals will hopefully expand in the next five to 10 years. Is there a specific jurisdiction that you think that maybe we should look towards to try to kind of uh, mimic or um, try to kind of implement similar laws or views? Well, the United States, in many respects, is leaps and bounds ahead of Canada with respect to animal protection laws. They do have problems as well. The ag-gag is a, a good example of how that is sort of a backward example to how far they've come in relation to other aspects. But the United States is unique in the sense that certain states, California is an example, is very far ahead in terms of protecting non-human animals relative to others. But the United States doesn't recognize the sentience of animals. So it's really hard to reconcile. I mean, we look at Spain and Spain has recognized sentience of animals, both from a criminal and a civil perspective in terms of those proceedings. But at the same time, bullfighting still goes on in Spain, which is another query is how do you reconcile that these are sentient animals capable of feeling pain and experiencing love, yet this barbaric practice still continues. And Jennifer, I know that earlier in the inter earlier in the interview, you mentioned that um, when you were, you know, initially starting out, or, or even maybe maybe relatively recently, you know, you would gain these kinds of chuckles uh, and and perhaps not be taken as seriously as perhaps you know maybe other um, lawyers in, in other fields, right? Would you say that the landscape uh, has changed uh, in the almost two decades since you've been practicing animal law and would you say that there's you know differences in the way that that has changed in either mainstream media or even in legal circles absolutely there's a huge difference when i reflect back on um, almost 20 years ago when i first started taking on these cases and as you said people laughing or just not taking them seriously that's changed a lot um, the protections have improved. They could be much better. Um, but importantly, the judiciary is recognizing these cases as important. At least many members of the judiciary are. And I think a good example to demonstrate the differences 
amongst the members of the judiciary and the challenges that we have are in relation to animal law and property disputes. When you look at how judges will handle these sorts of cases, you have a traditional judge on the one hand who will simply look at what was the purchase price and it's a simple quantitative calculation. Whereas more recently, you'll see judges who adopt a more contemporary relational approach and will say, wait a second, this is not just about who paid for this dog or cat, for example. It's not the same as a bicycle. This is a live being, um, was an integral member of this particular family or these particular individuals, is re really important to their lives. And how did their lives unfold before this dispute? And there are various indicia of ownership or custody, again, depending on how they characterize the dispute. And I think from that perspective, it, it demonstrates that we have come a long way. There's still far to go, but I always say crawl, walk, run. And so we have a lot of our listeners um, that are students. So we wanted to know if you'd have any tips for people who'd be interested in starting their own law firm, uh, of course, later along the line. We do realize a bit with uh, the discussion that we had earlier that it's important to kind of gather that experience beforehand so that you can properly uh, serve your clientele. Um, and also, what did the process look like for you when you started your own? I think at the law school stage, it's important where courses are available to take those courses. If you have a particular interest in a specific aspect of animal law to approach an instructor to ask about doing a paper. But in terms of getting that hands-on practical experience to try to get volunteer work, whether it's even at an animal hospital or veterinary clinic or at an advocacy organization, also to try to set up a chapter, an animal legal defense fund chapter, or any sort of animal advocacy club. Um, attend, you mentioned the conference, attend those conferences, whether it's from the Bar Association or the Law Society or other agencies and organizations that offer them to gain these insights and get a better sense of practically how these sorts of disputes unfold. In terms of my own practice and my journey, after working for the SPCA, writing the annotated statute, starting the Bar Association section and um, uh, prosecuting for the Horse Racing Commission. I felt equipped at that time that that collective experience gave me a unique skill set and knowledge to be able to effectively handle a whole variety of animal law disputes. And that's where I decided to open my own practice. Do you think that um, there are other things that students should look into before doing that, like say, have a better grasp of business 
and different things like that if it just so happens that they don't have that background um, in their other studies? Well, aside from gaining these experiences in law school and following law school, if you do opt to open your own practice, you're operating your own business. So you have to be very comfortable with budgeting, with client management. One of the worst aspects of the job is having to issue bills to clients. And that's something that you have to be comfortable with because it is uh, a career, it is a job. And when you offer legal services to people, you have to bill them in order to earn a living. Jennifer, I'd like to move on to your experience with teaching. If I'm not mistaken, you were an adjunct at Ottawa, and I think you're teaching um, at Western. Is that right? Um, yeah. So, uh, sorry. Oh, so I was just going to ask, what was your experience with teaching? Um, what's your experience been with mentorship and with working with current law students? So Ottawa was a 12-week online course. Um, which was an interesting dynamic in terms of, and we talked about this before, that um, it's interesting how things have evolved and how you can do things online when that would have been unheard of five years ago. Um, so it was great to be able to offer that program virtually to students. The course at Western, um, I'm not sure if this is something that's offered at various law schools, but it was an intensive course. It was a one week program um, and the students attend the course every day. And that was in person, uh, which was a great experience to be able to um, be with the law students. And it was actually my first time in 21 years since graduating, being back at the Faculty of Law in London. So that was a nice experience. Um, it was great to be able to interact with the uh, students. And aside from that, I take on students regularly who express an interest in animal law. And uh, finally, we always like to end with this question, just because we think it's it's extremely relevant, although it is quite um, broad. So just tell us whatever you feel. It might it might be different from um, one guest to the next. But what advice do you have for law students? Like, what would be your most important piece of advice? For me, the single most important piece of advice is to pursue something for which you are passionate. Um, it's a long career. I recognize some people move from different areas of law, your practice evolves, but this is something that you do daily. And for me, I'm very passionate and um, makes me excited to be able to handle diverse areas of animal law because I'm passionate. I was involved in a couple of other areas before I was able to enter the animal law field and I wasn't passionate about those areas. 
and my, my advice would be don't settle if you're not passionate about the area. Be confident, persevere if you get rejected um, or you think that there's no further opportunities. Come up with creative ways to persevere. So aside from passion, the second attribute I would say is perseverance. I think that's a really good place to end on. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for your wonderful insight. You're most welcome. It's great chatting with the two of you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. Thank you again, Jennifer, for your wonderful insight on the broad discipline of animal law, on how your work intersects with other areas of law, on the changing landscape in mainstream media as well as in legal circles to do with animal law, and also with your experience starting your own law firm and adjuncting at law schools. To learn more about our guest, um, Jennifer, how can our listeners um, reach you or learn more about the kind of work that you do? I have a website, CanadasAnimalLawyer.com, or you can also find me on LinkedIn. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. Check out our Instagram. At Beyond the Briefcase Podcast. To keep in touch as well as up to date with all of our episodes. Thank you so much to Adam Green, our technical producer. And of course, thank you, listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye.